Hello and welcome to Going Viral, the podcast all about pandemics. What about a disease that you know can actually easily spread by the respiratory route? I think the panic that would be associated with that would be just unimaginable. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci speaking to me in 2018. Since the coronavirus pandemic started, Dr. Fauci has become a household name, not least for his willingness to correct Donald Trump and take a stand for science. Today, he's the chief medical advisor to Joe Biden and the head of the president's coronavirus task force. But when I met him in February 2018 at his office at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease in Bethesda, Maryland, few Brits and not that many of his fellow Americans had heard of him. One of the things that separates us from many of the other research institutions at NIH is that it's our responsibility to respond rapidly to emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. Back then, Fauci told me his priority was a universal influenza vaccine. Over the last couple of years and just most recently, I have made the development of a universal influenza vaccine one of the top one or two priorities of the Institute in the coming years. But in what seems like an almost prophetic conversation, we talked about what would happen when and if there was a new pandemic. What are the lessons from 1918 and how do they apply today? I think one of the important lessons, (laughs) uh, it seems almost obvious, is that really bad pandemics can and have occurred. If you talk in the hypothetical, what if you have this? And people say, well, that'll never happen. It's never happened. We've already had an extraordinarily devastating pandemic just last century in the 20th century in 1918. If you look at the numbers of at least 50 million people died and put that in terms of the population of the United States and the population of the world today, that number would be three, four, five times what that is. So you can imagine if we had it, the lessons you learned that it can happen. And it's already proven itself to have happened. So that's the reason why we need to take the possibility of a pandemic very seriously. It's the science story of the century, how successful vaccines against COVID-19 have been created in under a year. Today, I'll be talking to some of the scientists behind this remarkable achievement and the planning that went into it. And we'll also be hearing about the new variants and the rollout of the vaccine program. We have a lot of coronavirus circulating almost in every country in the world. And that is a sort of recipe really for viral evolution. Of course, not even Dr. Fauci could have predicted that the next pandemic would be caused by a coronavirus or that it would prove as severe as it has. To date, more than 400,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. Worldwide, the death toll is 2.4 million and rising. But luckily, Dr. Fauci and others were already preparing back in 2018 and thinking about the vaccines and technologies that scientists would need to rapidly respond to a pandemic. Those are the kind of things that we need to be prepared for and as best as possible, always be very transparent and make statements to the public that are based on evidence and not conjecture. Shortly before I met Dr. Fauci, the World Health Organization coined the term Disease X to describe a hypothetical but unknown pathogen with pandemic potential. The idea was to remind people that a pandemic could come from anywhere. I asked Dr. Fauci about his take on disease X. 
I kind of think of this a bit like Donald Rumsfeld's Unknown Unknowns. Yeah. This is something that's not even on the radar right. and that we don't know, we don't know about right. yet. Well, I think there, there is some merit in trying to anticipate the more likely source of an outbreak. But I actually have somewhat of a different approach that I implement in the Institute here. And that is to advance what I call platform technology, namely vaccine, we call them platforms, which is a type of vaccine. So for example, live attenuated is a platform, inactivated is a platform, DNA, RNA, viral vectors, nanoparticles, viral-like particles, they're all different platforms, they're all different ways of making vaccines. So rather than anticipate, guess that it's going to be disease X, you perfect your platform technology so that you dramatically diminish the time from the identification and sequence of whatever this pathogen is and the development of a vaccine already in phase one, phase two trials. That's the approach that we do in addition to trying to anticipate, is it going to be NIPA or is it going to be Lhasa or is it going to be MERS or whatever it is that it's going to be? There's merit to that, but I believe there's more merit to trying to perfect your systems. One of the fruits of this platform technology are the new vaccines against COVID manufactured by Moderna and Novavax as part of Operation Warp Speed. The research was supported by scientists at the NIAID's Vaccine Research Centre. Dr. Fauci told me how the centre came into being. The Vaccine Research Centre was established on the basis of, of something that happened that is part of a storybook. It just, it was real. I mean, I was asked in December of 1996 to brief President Clinton and Vice President Gore in the Oval Office about just fundamental catch-up update on HIV-AIDS. And he asked me, why don't we have a vaccine for HIV? We've known about it since 1981, and it's now 1986. And I explained to him, and he got it because he's a very intelligent man, that the work, first of all, HIV is a very elusive virus. So even if you had all the right things in the right place, it would still be tough. But one of the things that was impeding it was that the work was siloed. There were vaccinologists who were doing their thing, virologists, immunologists, structural biologists, etc. It would be wonderful if we could put them all in one place and have them to talk to each other every single day. That would really forward the field of vaccinology in general and specifically for HIV. So he just turned around to his chief of staff, who was Leon Panetta at the time, and said, hey, let's do it. And when the president says, let's do it, it happens really quickly. But I thought that he was just saying it to be nice, to humor me. And then five months later, when he gave a commencement address at Morgan State College, he got up and in his commencement address, he announced that he was going to have a vaccine center at NIH. Right. And literally within months, all of a sudden it started. Yeah. And now we have one of the most important vaccine research centers that you could imagine, yeah. purely because President Clinton said, hey, that's a good idea. Let's right. do it. Leadership at the very top can make yeah. transforming differences. Since then, of course, we've seen the opposite is also true. Leaving Dr. Fauci's office back in 2018, I was struck by the fact that on his walls he had pictures of himself with every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan. Every president, that is, except Donald Trump. While Dr. Fauci was leveraging vaccine platform technologies in the U.S., in Britain, Professor Sarah Gilbert was also thinking about how to make vaccines against influenza and other emerging diseases. Today, Professor Gilbert is also a household name. She heads the team that developed the AstraZeneca vaccine at Oxford's Jenner Institute. 
I first spoke to her in 2018, shortly after my meeting with Fauci. At the time, Professor Gilbert was still concerned about Ebola and other recently emerging viruses. There has more recently been much more interest and much more funding for emerging pathogen vaccines. Since the Ebola outbreak, it's been realised that we should be developing vaccines against a number of different emerging pathogens that could cause outbreaks that could spread across the world and become a pandemic, which Ebola virus could have done if it hadn't been contained in time. And so there's been funding globally for vaccines against a lot of these new pathogens, new viruses that are out there that we don't have vaccines for. There's a lot of misinformation, it seems to me, around about vaccines today. I mean, here we are at the Jenner Institute, which is named after this English country doctor, Jenner, who invented the first vaccine against smallpox. I mean, as a scientist, looking back through the history of vaccines, can you explain their importance and significance as, as a kind of medical intervention? Vaccines are hugely important in protecting people's health. Firstly, they're the most cost-effective public health intervention for spending a very small amount of money. We stop people getting ill and we don't then have to deal with the consequences of them getting ill. There are many infections like flu that actually make you more susceptible to other illnesses. If you have measles, that causes a generalised immunosuppression and children who have measles infections, even if they didn't appear to be particularly ill at the time, are much more likely to be ill with other diseases later on. So by preventing them from getting measles, you prevent lots of other health issues that can arise later on. Children can grow up much more healthily if they're vaccinated and we don't have the deaths that we used to see from things like tetanus infections. It's a, it's a massively important intervention and vaccines are extensively tested before they're used on a wide scale. So people shouldn't be worried about using vaccines. In January 2020, the priority suddenly changed. As soon as the coronavirus emerged in Wuhan and Chinese scientists published its entire genetic code, Gilbert and other medical researchers turned their attention to COVID-19. Currently, there are 150 coronavirus vaccines in development, and several have already been approved for emergency use, including the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which uses mRNA technology, and the Oxford-AstraZeneca jab, which uses a chimp adenovirus vector. To help understand how these vaccines work, I turn to a young Cornell PhD student. A vaccine is a way to train your body to better fight off a virus or a bacteria known as a pathogen in the future. So you give it like a little glimpse of, okay, this is what you want to look out for. This is what you want to fight off in the future with that vaccine. So then in the future, if you ever run into that pathogen, your body says, we've seen that before, we're going to destroy it because we know that's bad. So hi, my name is Rob Swanda. You can find me on Twitter as Scientist Swanda or on YouTube, Rob Swanda, where you can see all of my videos describing SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, as well as the safety precaution measure necessary to combat this virus. Rob's vaccine video explainers have taken YouTube and Twitter by storm since he first started uploading them late last year. You could say he's something of a social media sensation. The video has been translated into Spanish, German, Arabic, into Chinese and into French. So it's just really exploded so much that I am so thankful that the education is being shared. Our producer, Melissa, put Rob to the test. I'm going to set my stomach. And asked him if he could explain the science behind the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine in under two minutes. 
And I'm going. Okay, so our genetic information will always move in a singular direction, and that's when our DNA gets turned into instructions, known as mRNA, which will then be turned into proteins, which are actually what's functioning in our entire body. Those proteins are found in our hair, in our muscles, in our eyes, and they allow us to do everything that we do. Now, they also are found in other viruses and other bacteria, and those proteins are what helps them do what they need to do. So in relation to SARS-CoV-2, the spike protein found on the outside of the cell is what allows it to infect us. And that spike protein is what we want to try to mimic if we're going to make a vaccine, because if our bodies see that spike protein in the future, they're going to know to destroy it. So these mRNAs vaccines work is that they've taken the instructions that are used to make that spike protein, packaged it into a little piece of fat, and then administered that into our cells. The fat is really critical because that's what allows it to actually go into our cells. And then once it's into our cells, it releases those instructions. Our bodies read the instructions and make the spike protein. As soon as that spike protein is made, our immune system says that is not supposed to be here. It comes in, destroys it, and then has that memory to destroy it in the future. One way I like to think about these mRNA vaccines is like you're going to get a recipe from a friend. You really love their food, but they're not just going to give you the food. They're going to give you the recipe. So you have to use your own ingredients to build that food. And then once you build it, you remember it for the future so you can make that dish anytime you want. Amazing! You did that in one minute forty-two. <laughs> Would you have any qualms if you were given the shot? Would you take it? I'm assuming you haven't been offered it yet. It might be a couple months, but I would definitely be up to take it as soon as it's my turn. And I'm excited to to take it too because I really believe in the technology and I think it's going to work. And I think that's also why we're seeing these high efficiency rates too, is because the technology was developed. And has been studied for so long. Vaccines using mRNA have been in the pipeline for several years. They've tr- been trying to use mRNA to combat influenza, to combat Ebola. They've actually been successful at using mRNA in the past for cancer treatment or for gene therapy. So the technology is being leveraged in a new way and is approved in a new way. But the actual pipeline of how it was developed and who has been working on it for a long time uh, is not something that is new. Oh, that was great. Um Did you ask Rob if he could explain the science behind the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine? I certainly did. I wouldn't miss that opportunity. Here he is. Three, two, one, and go. Our genetic information, as always, will flow from DNA to RNA to protein, and we can take advantage of this pathway when we design different vaccines. Now, the AstraZeneca and Oxford collaboration vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 will take advantage of creating immunity by giving us DNA that is involved with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, what they've done is that they've taken a very weak form of an adenovirus and they've sucked out all the genetic material. That's the material that's going to allow it to infect us, to replicate inside of us, and to make us sick. So it no longer can do that. They then have modified the SARS-CoV-2 virus and they've taken only the DNA that will turn into the spike protein and they've put it back inside the adenovirus. So you can think of this like you've taken a filled donut, you've sucked out all the insides, but you've put back a different filling. Or you can think of it like someone's wearing a jacket and now you've taken that jacket off of one person and you've put it on another. And now when this 
virus that can infect us, the adenovirus, is able to be used as a vaccine by infiltrating into our cells. It's then going to release the genetic material because that's what it's programmed to do. It wants to replicate inside of us. But because we've destroyed that component, it just can't do that. The only thing it's going to do is to release us that DNA that will now be turned into RNA and then will be turned into protein. And then that protein is what is that spike protein that our immune system is going to recognize, say that doesn't belong here, come in, destroy it, and then create memory in case they see that spike protein in the future on a SARS-CoV-2 infection, they'll know to be on the lookout and destroy that. Okay, it is the real two minute challenge. (laughs) So that was one minute and 44 seconds in case you're wondering. Yeah, that is pretty impressive, I have to say. He is an absolutely brilliant science communicator. And there wasn't a fluff or mistake. It was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I think we we could use more young science communicators like Rob. The more that come out, the more I'll make videos of too. (laughs) In a previous episode, you heard from my mother and my wife, Jeanette both of whom have received their jabs for the Pfizer vaccine. But I'm not a a priority frontline health worker. Um, I'm not old enough to be a priority. So like many in Britain, I'm kind of in limbo, uh, waiting for a call from the NHS. But in the summer of 2020, I was approached, uh, asked if I wanted to sign up for a trial of an experimental vaccine. And this turned out to be the Novavax vaccine trial. So I had my first jab back in November. It was November the 11th. So it was Armistice Day. And then I went back for a second jab right at the start of lockdown two on December the 2nd. And I stopped by the River Thames on my way back from Chelsea Westminster Hospital and recorded a little diary reflecting on what had just happened and what lay in the future. So I've just returned from Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, where a very nice nurse drew my blood, uh, and that's now going to be sent away to the laboratory. I must say, I felt absolutely nothing after the first jab in my left arm. But after the second jab, my arm was definitely heavier, the muscle felt more sore. And the day after the jab, I was quite fatigued that night and fell into a deep sleep. Like other trial participants, I have no way of knowing whether I received a placebo or the, the actual vaccine, but I have high hopes given the response. I was told today that should I be offered a vaccine by the NHS, I should definitely take the appointment, but that I should then call the trial group. And at that point, they can unblind the test and tell me whether I had the placebo or the vaccine and share their data with me which might mean that there'd be no need for me to take the Pfizer vaccine. This is a different type of vaccine to the AstraZeneca vaccine and different again from the Pfizer vaccine. It's using a new technology. So what they've done is a small biotech company based in Maryland. What they do is they manufacture the spike protein. They actually manufacture it in moths. They grow it in moth cells and then when they've got enough of the protein, they insert it into a delivery package So what you're actually getting is a stable, neutralized part of the spike protein. And they add an adjuvant supposed to sort of send a signal to the immune system, give it a bit of boost, and then hopefully it'll produce antibodies to the spike protein. In January of this year, a month after I recorded that diary, Novavax released the results of their phase three trial. The data was better than anyone expected. The vaccine had an astonishing 90% efficacy against the original virus and an 86% efficacy against the Kent or British variant. 
So, Mark, you don't know whether you're protected. In other words, you don't know whether you were on the placebo or the real vaccine. When will you find out? Well, I mean, that's a really good question, Melissa. So what I've been told is that um, the Novavax trial continues. It seems to have very good efficacy based on the initial trial data. But of course, if I haven't received the Novavax vaccine, then I definitely want to get either the Pfizer or the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes, of course. And can I ask why you took part in the trial? I mean, you were essentially a guinea pig. Do you mind being a guinea pig? Of course, I have to say one of the reasons was just pure self-interest. We've seen how challenging it has been for the government to roll out vaccines and get them to people who need them. So, you know, I was hoping, I suppose, to increase my odds of getting a vaccine. I have to say I was actually quite excited about it too. It felt like I was taking part in this incredible scientific adventure. So I wanted to be part of that. And of course, at the back of my mind, there's always a thought, well, you know, I'm a historian, I study this, I really have a moral duty to do it. But of course, also, I thought this will be an interesting experience, quite frankly, and, and something that would feed into my research and, and this podcast. So being part of history was an important part of the decision for you. Well, yeah, I, I think we're all part of history now. We're living in history. That's what's so fascinating about this. But also what I never anticipated was that there would be so many vaccines and that I get a chance to also take part in this marvellous process of scientific discovery. In December 2020, Britain became the first country in the world to roll out vaccines against COVID-19. Elderly and other priority age groups are being immunised first, with the rest of the British population to follow shortly afterwards. Israel, the EU, the US and India have also launched ambitious vaccination programmes. But with the appearance of new variants, it's imperative that vaccines are rolled out before the virus can mutate further and potentially rendered the vaccines less effective. To get a better sense of how the coronavirus is evolving and the threat posed by the British and other variants, I spoke to Wendy Barclay, a leading virologist at Imperial College London. One of the most obvious advantages that viruses like this have that sort of bring them and, and allow them to spread and become predominant is if they have an advantage in transmitting if they transmit more efficiently, then it's much more likely that that one is the one which is going to pass from one infected host to the next and, and spark the next round of infections. We saw already in even really early on after SARS-CoV-2 emerged that a particular mutation in the spike protein, which is called D614G, aspartic acidoglycine at position 614, emerged and became predominant. Uh, and subsequently, laboratory-based assays have shown that that mutation in the spike gives the virus an advantage by allowing it to transmit more efficiently. And therefore, you know, it's no wonder that now every virus in the world has that D614G change in it. It's estimated that the new variant raises the R rate by between 0.4 to 0.7. But how does it do that? We think that it's to do with the virus, the variant virus, having a cluster of mutations in the spike protein, which give it an advantage in transmission. And some data that backs that up is the observation that, in general, when you compare the amount of virus, the viral load, measured in people with the variant versus the viral load measured in people 
around about the same time and in the same geographical area who don't have the variant but have the non-variant viruses. In general, there's just a little bit more virus in the people infected with the variant. So this value that we call the CT value, which is a measure of that comes from the PCR that's done. It's a quantitative measure of how much virus there is in the swabs of people who've turned up for test and trace or in hospitals. And overall, there's about two to three numerical difference in the CT value, which means that those people have got a bit more virus in their nose and throat. And if they've got more virus, I think that probably means the virus is replicating in them a little bit more efficiently. And therefore, they emit a little bit more virus and it's more likely to survive in the environment and find another person to infect. And it may also mean that the viruses themselves are a little bit better at getting into that next person. And therefore, you may need a little less exposure to actually initiate infection after the transmission event. Could it be one reason why this new variant has emerged now? Could it be actually a response to the lockdown measures, social distancing measures we've been taking? So the the new variant is transmitting better. And I think such viruses will emerge. I mean, actually, even thinking back to swine flu in the second and third wave of swine flu in sort of winter 2010, 2011, we saw variants of that virus begin to emerge and predominate that were better at transmitting. So I think the virus is settling down and, and you know being selected to transmit better. Now, whether or not the lockdown in November really enhance that, I'm not sure. I think that epidemiologists would tell you that that increased transmission seems to have sort of occurred in school-age children. So we we did see a shift whereby in the first wave of SARS-CoV-2, we didn't really see that school-age children were contributing very much to transmission. Whereas now with the variant, it does appear that they do, and that was happening. And of course, in that lockdown in November, many adults were socially distancing, working from home but we kept the schools open and therefore we allowed the virus to be transmitting amongst school-aged children. Whether or not that was the cause of it, I couldn't say, but it certainly meant that school-aged children at that point through November were contributing more to the transmission than they had done before. So what sort of threat do these new variants pose for the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines? The evidence that we've got so far about the UK variant is that it's transmitting extremely well. But there is no evidence, for example, that it's causing more reinfections of people who were infected in the first wave in proportion to any of the other variants that are out there. So we don't think that the UK variant is really what we call antigenically very different than sort of the vaccines that we have. And we do expect that that UK variant will be controlled by the vaccines. However, There are other variants beginning to appear in different parts of the world, which are worrisome because they have other mutations which may have an effect, at least in some people, on their ability to uh, make antibodies that will neutralise those different variants. And I think what's becoming obvious to some of us is that these vaccines are probably going to need updating at some point in just the same way that we need to update the influenza vaccine fairly regularly. And at the moment, we're in a place where we have a lot of coronavirus circulating almost in every country in the world. And that is a sort of recipe, really, for viral evolution. What would you say, though, to young adults who've seen friends of theirs get ill and recover and now are saying things like, well, I've had COVID, that means I have immunity, why should I get a vaccine? That may well be the case. 
Um, you may have natural immunity that prevents infection. You know, young people are not currently being offered the vaccine, so so fine. The people being offered the vaccine at the moment in phase one, up until sort of April, May, are those people who really need it to protect them from a threatening, life-threatening disease for them. As we go forwards, we may get to a point where we want to roll vaccine out to younger people. And by that time, of course, they will have the advantage of probably 30 million other people around the UK and many more millions of people in the rest of the world who have received the vaccine. And they'll be able to see how, you know, and if there has been any safety issues, I, I very much doubt it, but they'll, they'll have all of that experience to look at. And then it comes down to, you know, a very different use of vaccines, which would be to give vaccines to the part of our community who contribute more to transmission than are necessarily at personal high risk. And this is always an interesting debate. And again, if we just glance back to flu, about eight years ago now, the UK made a decision based on experience in the swine flu pandemic of 2009 to begin to give live attenuated vaccine to children in the UK, live attenuated flu vaccine. Vaccines. And that decision was really based on some strong epidemiological evidence that showed that school aged children are major spreaders of influenza and bring it home to elderly and vulnerable people in the home. And that if we could control flu in the schools, we would indirectly help other people whose own immune systems may not be very good at responding to vaccines. And it may be that in the longer term, that is a strategy that we need to think about for SARS-CoV-2 and coronavirus control going forwards. It's not an option that's currently available to us for several reasons. One is that the clinical trials have not yet tested whether or not the vaccines are good in children or, or safe, and we need to do those trials before we even have that option. And secondly, because vaccines are so limited at the moment, we need to give them to people whose lives are at risk rather than take this strategy of transmission control. But going forwards, I think we may consider expanding the vaccine programme out to those people who are the transmitters in order to be able to control it more in the community. Can you see any way this pandemic will end without a vaccine? vaccine. Is there a way? So going for, you know, burn through herd immunity was, of course, a strategy that uh, several countries considered in the first wave. Unless you're going to ask people at higher risk in age groups 55 or above, perhaps to lock themselves in their houses, then it's not really an option. The other thing I would say about natural immunity to coronaviruses is that we really don't know at the moment how long that lasts for. But what we do know is that for seasonal coronaviruses, we see re-emergence and reinfections happening on roughly a, a two-year basis. So we, you know, modeling and uh, and epidemiology shows that people get reinfected throughout their lives with the four seasonal coronaviruses, which we know about that cause 30% of common colds. And that doesn't really give us much hope that natural immunity itself is ever going to deal with this virus. The concept is that the vaccines we're using will give a better, longer lasting, more robust immunity than natural immunity. And if they don't, we'll just give them more regularly and artificially create that immunity, which will be a much more effective way of dealing with this than relying on people just getting reinfected by this virus every two years. Is SARS-CoV-2 disease X? Yes, I think so. I mean, I can't see any evidence that would say otherwise. It's come from animals. It's learned to transmit and infect incredibly well in humans. And I must say that I, despite the fact I've thought about this for my working life, I am horrified by the effect it's had on the world. One of the important things that will come about as a result of SARS-CoV-2 is this 
rapidity of vaccine response. It's still not fast enough, but we've learned such a lot uh, and done so well, really, to get vaccines into people's arms within a year of, of a completely new pathogen emerging in this way. So I am hopeful that with that platform now in place, we would be very much quicker next time around and save more lives more quickly. But at the end of the day, I suppose I'm also struck by the reliance that we have had to place on non-pharmaceutical interventions and social distancing strategies, which have been very painful, I think, for many people around the world. Could there be another disease X? Could it happen again? Yes, it will happen again. This is most likely the first of many of these incidents. There are hundreds of distinct coronaviruses in the bat reservoir alone, which have the capacity to mutate and cross into humans. There are avian influenza viruses and swine influenza viruses that we know can do that already. And there are other viruses, for example, para-influenza viruses, there's Nipah, there's Hendra, that have been banging on the door uh, and showing us that there is the potential that they could mutate and acquire airborne transmissibility. And then there's a whole raft of other viruses that might learn to transmit efficiently between humans using different routes, for example, through water. So I am quite convinced this is not the last disease X that we will see. That's a sobering thought, but I think Wendy's quite right. From my study of the history of pandemics and epidemics, this is certainly not the last pandemic that we'll see this century. Thanks for listening to Going Viral. Stay tuned for more episodes of Vax and the Facts, where I'll be exploring more about the history and science of vaccines. You can find us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod and on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And my producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. This has been Facts and the Facts.